Well, thank you for uh, all the birthday wishes. Uh, there's another birthday today, Ben Botbile, and Ben is, uh, I think, in the back with the kids, so he also celebrates a birthday today. So I was talking to his daughter, Rowan, and uh, said, yeah, my dad turned 39. He's old. I said, well, I'm 65, and he goes, you're real old. So I appreciate that. Um, so this has been a a great weekend for Marl and I. We've just been kind of hanging out together, and uh, our association has a pastor's wife getaway the weekend prior to uh, thank, or Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day. So uh, we got to spend some time together, but it is also an emotional weekend for us because it was a year ago um, that I had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer and uh, did not know if I would be standing here uh, this time this year. So uh, it was on actually Valentine's Day that we had our first meeting at the James Cancer Center with our oncologist and surgical oncologist and explaining to us all the procedures that I would be going through and so on and so forth. And on top of that, my sister just died and it was, um, it was, very, uh, it was a very emotional time for us, but God in his grace. And one of the things I love about the song, This Is How I Fight My Battle, is uh, there's a phrase in there right out of Psalm 23. It says, uh, God has prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemy. And of course, your enemy is the evil one, right? So one of the things that Satan wanted to do in my life and the life of my wife and my children is that we would be angry with God. We would be, you know, just resentful that I had, I had uh, contracted cancer and that we would withdraw our our worship, our love. And one of the things I very early on as I was praying, and certainly the news of having cancer is completely devastating, and your mind goes to dark places, but one of the things I said in the face of my enemy, um, because as Jesus prepares this table, and as you fellowship with him at the table, your enemy has to watch, right? So I said from the very outset, you know what, Satan, it doesn't matter what you do to my body, whether I live or die, you will not, you will not stop me from worshiping my God and my Savior. So I focused in on the 23rd Psalm uh, during my journey with cancer and blogged about that. And um, God just was very, very gracious and kind. Uh, when I had my surgery, it was 11-hour surgery. Um, my wife took a picture of me the, the very next morning um, because I was at an angle during surgery. My head was like a pumpkin and I had you know, I was intubated and tubes in me, and I was strapped down because I came, became combative when I was coming out of anesthesia. And my daughter was sitting next to me, and she took that picture. And two weeks later, my wife took another picture, and it was me sitting on the front porch of my house eating a bowl of oatmeal. So contrasting what God did in that two-week span of time was a miracle, and I thank you for all your prayers and support during that time. It was, it was absolutely amazing. Um, so just a couple things real quick. If you're a guest with us for the first time, we wel welcome you and in your bulletin. I hope you grabbed one as you came in. There's a connection card. If you take a moment and fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, and you can drop that in one of the baskets at the exit door, and there's a gift there for you if you have not picked one up already. Just one announcement, and that is the um, Super Bowl party for tonight is canceled due to a lack of Excitement and participation, I, I know. So next year we'll have it again because the Cowboys will be in it, so you, you can anticipate that. Um, also, guys, you know, I, I just want, I'm your, you know, I'm pastor of this church, the, the shepherd of the flocks. I really want to help our men, okay? So um, Valentine's Day is coming up here in just a couple of days. Uh, be reminded of that. So in order to bless you, I want to, um, I want to share with you what you... I don't know what you have planned for your Valentine's Day, for your, your, um, your wife, for your girlfriend, or what, whoever it might be, your, your significant other, but I just want to share with you what you should not plan, okay? So let me say, if you had no idea what to get her for Valentine's Day, imagine how overwhelming arranging her funeral would be. Give her the perfect gift, make pre-arrangements as a couple with all the affordable funeral home. Chosen from affordable funeral services or affordable cremations, compassion is our passion. By the way, did we tell you that it is affordable? This is not the thing to give your wife or your significant other, okay? 
If you do, you're an idiot. That's all I can tell you. You're an idiot. So, My wife and I had our very first date um, 46 years ago on Valentine's Day. And when I got her a card, I didn't know how to sign it. You know, I'd just say, Greg. So I put, love, Greg. And she took that as like, this guy's a creeper. I, I don't know if I want to date him or not. So you may not want to do that if it's your first date. Okay, let's go to Romans 14. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we're talking about the same topic of accepting each other when we find ourselves in the middle of disagreements over what Paul called disputable matters. And these matters are things that where the Bible doesn't really say clearly you should do this or not do that, or it doesn't give you a principle that you can go by to help guide you in that decision uh, that you're about to make concerning whatever it might be that, that is not clearly spelled out in Scripture. And, uh, but you want to be wise, right? You want to take God's Word, you want to take His principles, you want to make the wisest decision that you can possibly make. So sometimes when it comes to disputable matters, um, in churches is that there's a topic and everybody has a conviction about that topic or they have an opinion or we have, uh, you know, our, our conscience says, well, it ought to be this way and it shouldn't be this way and it ought to be that way and not this way. So Paul is addressing this in the church because remember the church at Rome was made up of certainly Jewish believers, but by and large they were Gentile, non-Jewish believers who brought in with them their Greek culture that they grew up in. So, you know, when I got saved, I wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't raised in the church. I didn't start church until I was in my teens. And when I got saved and came to the church, I had, you know, I was immersed in culture. And I, I brought in all of my, you know, my beliefs and my convictions and my opinions. And when, you know, I got saved, uh, all of a sudden, some of those things began to change, but not all of them. And so it's, it is uh, easy you know, someone would say, well, you can't do this, and you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. And so I was just taking my cues from whatever everybody was telling me, even though I really didn't have a firm belief one way or the other. And so in order to keep unity within the church over these disputable matters, Paul addresses this issue because it's vitally important. We can argue over all kinds of things within, uh, within the church. So I want to kind of step into this by giving you three approaches to culture, okay? Um, there are things for which, you know, we are faced by culture, and when people are saved and you grew up in a culture, you grew up in a family, you have the background, you have beliefs that you bring into the church just as it was happening in the church at Rome, and they were having disagreements about various things, so there are really three approaches. So Paul starts off in chapter 14 and verse 1 by comparing and contrasting those with weak faith with those who have stronger faith. They said those who are weak in faith tend towards colonialism, which is we would call legalism. Uh, you're weak in your faith, and you're not sure how to navigate in this newfound liberty that you have in Jesus Christ. And so in order to make sure you don't step over the boundaries in these disputable matters, you're going to come up with a set of rules in your mind, in your heart, or somebody's going to give them to you and say, hey, you know, for example, for me, it's like you, you can't do these things, but you can do these things, and, but I like doing these things that you tell me I can't do, I know, but, you know, you, you got to stop doing those things. Um, how do we navigate through that? For example, in this uh, particular church, a, a legalist is someone who underestimates the power of our new nature in Christ to motivate us to, to follow the Lord and to obey God. Now, some of those things we have to grow into. You know, when I got saved, I just didn't automatically stop cussing. I didn't automatically drop my drugs and alcohol. I didn't automatically drop the things that I was doing necessarily. But over time, God's Holy Spirit began transforming me from the inside out just like he is you. And he does that for every follower of Jesus Christ. And so as time goes on and God begins to refashion and reform my conscience and my convictions and my beliefs, um, things begin to drop off that really needed to drop off, and God added things that really needed to be added. So legalists uh, constantly are adding to the Bible standards or conduct for Christians to make sure that everybody stays in line. For example, the scribes and Pharisees in Paul's day and time, uh, you know, there were 613 commands that God had given Israel, and they, they not only kept those commands, they added a, a whole lot of other commands on top of that. 
in order to keep you from, um, you know, committing sin in one of the commands of 613 commands that I've already been given you. In other words, I'm going to set up fences and make you hurdle over them before you actually commit the sin. And so this is what, what happens in the minds of, of even Christians yet today. So what are the disputable matters that we can become very legalistic about? Well, some of them are, for example, specifying what is the authoritative version of the Bible that you use. Right? Some people say, well, it's King James only. Do you use anything other than King James? I've had people come to this church and said, you know, we love, we love the church, we love your preaching, but you guys don't use King James, we're out of here. Right? So there are those who hold to that position, that if it's not King James, it's, it's not authoritative, it's not of God, it's, it's only man-made. Or what about certain kinds of entertainment? Like when it comes to music, uh, what about music? Are you allowed to listen to country music? Uh, you know, so you can get your dog back and your truck back and everything else you lost? Uh, are we allowed to listen to rock music or do we have to listen to Christian music only? Well, what about jazz music and, and what about other types of music? And so certainly the Bible would give us some guidelines there. But for example, if I'm listening to lyrics that are horrible, you know, um, you know, the Bible says don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Well, I think a good translation would be don't let unwholesome things come into your ears either that infiltrate your mind and your emotions and your actions in life. So I would guard against, you know, what kind of lyrics am I listening to? But is there a style of music that's, you know, you can't? The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't, uh, does not address that. Well, what about movies? What about dancing? Um, all of these other things. Well, what about the Sabbath, you know? Can I worship only on Sunday? Can I, you know, do I get credit if I worship on Saturday nights or if I worship on Thursday nights? Um, and, and by the way, your Sabbath, whatever day that is, whether it's Sunday, which typically, obviously, we're here on Sunday. Well, on Sabbath, are you allowed to go home or, or go out to eat after church? Because after all, you're making people work on Sunday. Uh, you know, your waiters and the, and the servers and those who are cooking the food. And what about work? Are you allowed to work? Are you allowed to cut your grass on Sunday? Or is that a, a no-no? Because, you know, the Bible says we shouldn't work on Sundays. Are we allowed to shop? Is, is that outlawed on Sundays? So these are disputable matters that people really get heated in the heated confrontations over. And what about musical instruments in the church? Ooh. <laughs> um. For example, drums. Back in the 70s, when drums were being introduced into worship, modern worship, that was a hotly debated thing. Or when we were moving from hymns to choruses, you would have thought the Antichrist showed up. And then we moved on to other types of music. And so Bill Gothard, was, I don't know if you probably haven't heard of him, but he was a very predominant teacher in, um, in the 70s, traveled all over the world teaching and Bill Gothard was hugely against drums in the church because here's his, here was his line of thinking. Listen, I go over and I try to reach those who are in Africa, the villages of Africa, and those witch doctors, they use drums to conjure up, you know, the, uh, the demonic world. And so if you put drums in the church, you're gonna, the beat of that drum is going to be conjuring up the demonic world into your services and so on and so forth. Or what about guitars? You know, guitars for a long time. Uh, were like taboo in church, and there were, I, I remember some very heated debates over whether or not instruments could be introduced other than a piano and an organ, right? Those, those were it, like we were just locked in there. Or what about school, right, for your children? Does it need to be a Christian school? Does it need to be homeschooled? Does it need to be public school? And so um, people ask me this all the time. I said, look, Whatever your conscience is telling you, if you think homeschooling is best for your children, you need to homeschool. If you think a Christian school is best, send them to a Christian school. If you think public school is best, you send them to a public school. It is really, there's no clear-cut word of God that says, oh, you have to do this, this, or this. Um, if that's what you feel is best for your children, that's what you should do. So here's a big one, uh, dress code. Whew. What are we allowed to wear to church? As I shared last uh, week, you know, some, there for a long time, women could only wear dresses, couldn't wear pants, and oh my goodness, if you wore shorts to church, you're going right to hell. I'm just telling you, it's just happening. Um, here, here's, the, here's another big debatable, disputable matter. What about tattoos? You know, for many, many years, it's like, oh, only bikers get tattoos, you know, and uh, 
And so Christians shouldn't have tattoos. And that was a hotly debated and disputed thing. And then there are doctrinal issues. What about the rapture? You know, is the rapture and the second coming all one event? Or are they two separate events? Or, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism says that Jesus only died for the elect. And it's irresistible grace. And you're predestined whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. And Arminianism says, you know, no, it's the choice of man. It's whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so there are all of these things that over the course of church history, there have been huge, huge debates in the body of Christ that have greatly divided Christians over the years. And so even in the church at Rome, it's like, hey, uh, if we, if, if, I come to faith in Christ, and I'm out of the Greek culture, and there's, you know, the Jewish culture in the New Testament church, and like, do we have to follow Jesus plus, you know, follow the dietary laws, follow the holy day, you know, holy days, do we have to get circumcised, and when they begin to realize that the circumcision class wasn't filling up by the Gentiles, like, well, maybe we, we don't need to do that, and this became so heated that in Acts 15, there was what was called the Jerusalem the Council of Jerusalem, to try to figure this out. Is it Jesus plus something else, or is it Jesus in these areas of disputable, disputable matters? And so some people become very legalistic. Some people swing to the opposite side, where it's compromise. It's liberalism, where people might be very strong in their faith, but they swing the pendulum way too far over here, and now everything's a go, right? Here's their line of thinking. Well, uh, I'm in Christ, he's in me, I've been justified by God through Jesus Christ, I live in the realm of God's grace, God has already, through Christ, forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future, I live in the realm of grace, therefore, it really doesn't matter what we do, because it's all grace, and, it's, and usually, liberalism focuses in, you know, intently on the love of God, and forget about all of his other attributes, and now everything goes, right? That's what I call um, grace gone wild. It's just, yeah, every, everything is fair game. And, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter addressing these issues that were asked of him concerning these things. It's called 1 Corinthians. And people were firing questions at Paul, and they were saying things like, hey, uh, can we have sex before marriage? Can we be transgender? Can we get drunk? Can we live and sleep with our girlfriend or boyfriend? Can we go to strip clubs and church? Is that okay? Can we worship Jesus and be parts of other religious and spiritual ideologies? And Paul started addressing those issues of liberalism in 1 Corinthians because it was creating what? Huge factions in the church. They were fighting with one another. And some say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. I'm a follower... And so Paul has to address those things, and how did he address them? Those questions was, no, 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 no. When, when culture and scripture disagrees, liberalism tends to follow culture, whereas legalism will follow scripture, but we push it to the nth degree, and liberalism pushes liberalism to the nth degree. And what Paul's going to say is, hey, uh, it's not about colonial uh, ism. It's not about compromise. It's about contextualizing, and that simply means that we have liberty in Christ, yes. We've been set free in Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven. God has opened up the floodgates of, and parameters that we can work within as the Word of God gives us those parameters, and we have the freedom to exercise within the realm of those parameters, but we want to make sure we have balance. All right, when it comes to these disputable matters, what Paul would say is this. If within the liberty of Christ, you are doing certain things and God doesn't forbid it, it's not, you know, again, there's no scriptural mandate, there's no principle that intersects that. If it is in keeping with your conscience, then stay with your conscience. If God needs to change your conscience, he'll do it through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. I can't say, well, my conscience says that you can't drink at all and you must abstain. I can't force my conscience on somebody else because that might not be the way they see it. That might not be their conscience. And so rather than me forcing myself on them, I have to allow God to move in their conscience. And I'm not saying it's, 
you know, absolutely forbidden to drink because the, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does forbid drunkenness. It doesn't say anything about abstaining totally from alcohol. Now, everybody in this room has an opinion on that. My, what Paul's point is, hey, follow your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. Don't let somebody make you violate your conscience because if you do that, over time, you will start violating your conscience in other areas and your conscience will become seared like with a hot iron and now you're no longer open and receptive and in tune with what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in a given situation. That's the danger. And so we, we all have, we have liberty. I, I don't. My motivation for serving God and following him is not because I'm trying to earn anything. It's out of my gratitude and my love for him for what he's done for me through Jesus Christ. So there are three ways to approach people who disagree with you. So what Paul does in this half of chapter 14 is gives you the counter of what I gave you last week. So in other words, rather than labeling people um, who disagree with you, we want to do what? We want to help them make wise decisions. Look what he says in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. Now, we talked about food, right, in, in the very first part of this, this chapter, because those, those who were uh, eating, uh, buying meat out of the marketplace, that meat had been offered up, as, 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 up to idols as sacrifice, and then the meat was taken and given in the marketplace, and, and those who were strong in faith, like, Pah. and it was Paul said, hey, you know, that the meat has no meaning whatsoever. Uh, I care less who they offered that up to. I'm going to buy the meat. I'm going to eat the meat. But others that violated their conscience, so they would only eat vegetables. They wouldn't buy out of the marketplace. And Paul would say, well, that's fine. If that's your conscience, if that's what your conviction is, you need to stay with that. But don't look down on me because I eat meat, and don't, the meat eater, don't look down on the person who's doing only vegetables because you both have your convictions based upon uh, what you see as the overriding principles of God's word in this given situation. Now, notice he uses the word stumbling block and obstacle. The word stumbling block is promoska in, um, in the Greek. It means to, uh, to like trip somebody. For example, if you are in a restaurant, you're sitting on the outside of the booth and a waiter or waitress is coming down with a tray and you, you know, stick out your foot and they trip over, you know, you think that's going to be funny. Uh, they fall over you and they, you know, everything's a mess, right? She falls on the ground, uh, you know, dishes are going everywhere. That's the word he's using here. And then obstacle means to bait a trap. It's like um, you, you, you would bait a trap if you had, you know, a, a rabbit problem. You wanted to get all the bunnies out of your backyard, which I had to do one time. And I, I had traps and so I bait the traps to lure them into the trap. So that's, this is what Paul is saying here in, in these disputable matters. In other words, he's saying, listen, um, he's, he's picturing here, he said, your conscience in a disputable matter might be like more on the liberal side, and you've got somebody who's more on the legalistic side uh, that you are having conversation with or a discourse about this disputable matter. And what he is saying is, uh, those of you who are stronger in your faith, don't try to wreck the faith. Don't try to, bat the, to bait the person into your side of the argument because now you're asking them, again, you're asking them to violate their conscience, their conviction, and that's not what we're called to do, all right? Um, for example, we have a, a family member uh, who believes, has a conviction, if you drink any alcohol whatsoever, you're going to hell. But you can gamble all you want, right? So, uh, it, it, so these are disputable matters, right? What does God say about drinking, gambling? And uh, so, if if I was strong in the faith, and I say, well, listen, uh, I want to tell you what you you give me verse in Scripture where it says that I can't have a drink, and you know that social drinking is going to send me to hell. I'll be gladly to align myself with the word of God, because that's what I, I try to do. And they're, they're fumbling around. They might, listen, people who have deep conviction about something, they've always got a proof text, right? They're going to pull up a scripture somewhere. It may be out of context, 
or it may be only part of the, the truth, but what Paul would say is, I don't want to trip you up. I don't want to bait you in so that I make you see it my way, all right? Let's say, for example, you have a child, and you maybe have a strong conviction about tattoos, and your, your, your child says, hey, I want to get a tattoo. <laughs> no, not over my dead body, <laughs> uh, this kind of thing. So now, now you can get away with that if you're a parent and they're, you know, underage, but when they become an adult, now what happens, right? So let's say they get said tattoo. Are you going to make them feel horrible about it every time you see them? Well, you know what the Bible says about that tattoo. This is what Paul is saying. He said, listen, all you're doing is creating a lot of tension and a lot of um, heated arguments within the context of this relationship because the Bible doesn't, and I, the proof text people pull out is always one out of the Old Testament. You know, you don't put any marks on your body. Um, but I noticed in the book of Revelation that Jesus has tattoos. Read it. <laughs> He's got tattoos on himself. Uh, probably not the same kind of tattoos we have, but uh, what does the Bible say about that? Well, it's a matter of your conscience. It's a matter of your conviction. If you don't think it's right, then don't do it. But you can't belittle somebody who has just because you feel like it's wrong when the Bible doesn't clearly say it is wrong. And so you're thinking, if you're thinking right now, well, yes, it does. Um, we can have a long discussion, right? Listen, here, here's the point. Things are neutral. People are not. All right, so things are neutral in that you can use something. So, for example, let's take the, the whole argument with the meat being offered to idols. An idol is like was even a carver, carved image out of wood or it might have been out of stone. Is that image in and of itself neutral? Absolutely. It doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have, has no significance unless you attach significance to it. And so this was Paul's argument about meat. Listen, meat's neutral, all right? I don't care if they offered it up to an idol. I don't worship that idol. I, I have no qualm. If they want to sell that in the marketplace, I'm going to buy it. I'm going to eat it. And it's, I'm not going to, it's not going to hurt my conscience one iota. But what Paul would say, if it hurts your conscience, then don't do it. You don't have to do it. You, you can you know, look for an alternative. I mean, think about... Um, a baseball bat, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that depends what you do with it, right? If you give it to a group of kids, they'll play baseball with it. But if you give it to somebody who maybe is a part of a gang, they may take the bat and beat somebody to death with it. The bat itself is neutral. It's neither good or bad. It's what you do with that object of neutrality. And so this is the whole point is that what religious people do is say, well, if anybody ever uses anything bad, we have to forbid it. <laughs> okay, well, what about food? I think food's pretty important, is it? Uh, yeah, but the Bible talks about taking food and using it for gluttony. So there are all kinds of things that the Bible says this is neutral in and of itself, but what you do with it determines whether or not it is, it is good or it is bad. And so what Paul would say, listen, the problem, the problem here isn't, isn't what's just around us. The real problem is what's inside of us. Paul's made this whole argument throughout this book. He said, listen, we are a part of the problem. We're not the solution. Right? This is why there is absolutely no... Um, I mean, we have no power to fix the world. Non-Christians have no power to fix the world. Why? Because the problem with the human heart is just that, the human heart, which is the source of our problem. Who's the only person who can change somebody's heart? God, Jesus, right? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul would say, listen, let's stop 
focusing on all of these trivial matters out here, these disputable matters, let's let God focus on our hearts. Let's focus on our hearts so that we allow the Holy Spirit of God to bring our hearts, our lives, our minds, our, our conscience, our convictions in alignment with his word. And this is what the Bible calls that great big word sanctification, which simply means it is a lifelong process. Here's what I've seen happen over the many, many years is that you might be a person who's strong in their faith or maybe you're weak in their faith. It doesn't matter. But you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. Somebody just gets saved and you see them doing things that in your mind is taboo over a disputable matter and immediately you hammer them. I'll give you a case example in this church. Many years ago, we were reaching a lot of teenagers who were coming from a lot of difficult family backgrounds. Mothers were prostitutes or drug addicts, this, that, and the other, and they came in here. They didn't look right, right? They weren't wearing the right clothes. The hair was too long. They were wearing hats in the hallways, and some people were confronting them and, you know, just in a very harsh manner. And these kids are lost. They, they're, they're looking for significance and security and purpose in life. And now they've been hammered by somebody who is supposed to be a follower of Jesus. And it was a real struggle for them to continue to come here because they were fearful what people were going to say about them. This is what Paul is contending against in the body of Christ is that we have to be very, very careful because the problem isn't just around us. The problem is within us, and the problem he's arguing against is what I would call religion. Religion is all about what is out there without ever looking at what's in here. This is why Jesus said, who gave Jesus the most difficulties? The religious people. You know what he said about them? You guys are whitewashed tombstones. Oh, 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 oh. See, the tombstones in that day and time were beautiful. They were whitewashed. They were marble. They were gorgeous on the outside, but they had beneath the surface dead man bones. And what Jesus was saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you guys, you've got it all going on on the outside. You pray your lengthy prayers. You ring your little bells and get everybody to watch you as you pray and as you drop your, your offering in the offering plate and, you, and as you fast, you make sure everybody knows that you're fasting. You look very like it was spiritual. He says, but beneath the surface, you guys are dead. You're spiritually dead and decaying. And so... Jesus was saying that everyone who sees what's on the outside, but said, man, I look into the heart. And what Paul is arguing against in Romans 14 is the same thing that Jesus was arguing against in Matthew 23. Religious people come along and say, the way to do it is this way, it's this way, it's this way, it's my way or the highway. It's my way because my way is God's way, and if you don't do it my way, you're not doing it God's way. This is how we get into arguments and disputable matters. You have your strong convictions, you have your conscience, and you believe everybody has to see it the way you see it, or you can't fellowship with them. And Jesus would say, that's just not right, and that so would Paul. That's not the way I designed the church. Because sometimes we are weak in areas, and we're stronger than others, and weak people, uh, legalists, are easily offended and pass judgment. We say, well, if you only knew the word of God and start name calling. And, uh, you know, that's the lowest form of judgmentalism. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing how religion is a real threat to the relationships in the body of Christ. And this is Paul's point. Let's stop labeling, judging each other in such a fashion. And why don't we start the opposite of that? and help people make wise decisions. See, if, if I disagree with you over a disputable matter, I'm not going to try to force you onto my side. I'm just going to simply say, here's what I tell people all the time, is listen, I understand that's your position. We may disagree. Remember what we were talking about? We have to agree to disagree agreeably. Uh, we may disagree. I just want to help you make the wisest decision you need to make. So in light of your past experiences, your present circumstances, and your future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? As you 
reflect on God's clear commands, his principles, your past experiences, present concerns, future hopes. What's the wise thing to do here? And you let the Holy Spirit guide your conscience. Now, what's, what if their conscience still is saying, well, this is the way I see it? Great. If God needs to change that, guess what? He's the change agent. I'm not. I'm just going to love the person and say, here's, here's how I came to the conclusion I've come to. And maybe this will be helpful to you. Maybe it is, it is not. And so uh, there are three basic um, categories for living in culture. And uh, I'm putting most of this message in the front end, so don't get, um, don't get too um, crazy on me. Uh, we'll fill out the outline. The rest of it's going to go pretty rapid, okay? So this is what I say, call receive, reject, or redeem, all right? These are three principles that I try to keep in mind whenever, you know, I'm, I, I am uh, trying to come to a conclusion about what are called disputable matters, right? Um, so receive says you receive what God hasn't forgive, forbidden, right? For example, um, the internet, is that good or bad? Absolutely, it's both. Could be good, could be bad. I mean, it can be used for horrible intentions. It can be used for good intentions. We streamline our services on, on the Internet. My blog goes out over the Internet. Those, those are good things. Um, my doctor and my, my oncologist and my surgical oncologist were both Muslim. Would it have been foolish for me to say, well, you're of the Muslim faith. You can't operate on me. Eh, <laughs> Right? Those two individuals were used of the Lord to help save my life, and God brought about healing in my body. And so one of the beautiful things about all that is when God brought about the miracle of my absolute complete healing and pathology, there's no, absolutely no cancer found anywhere, uh, it had a, an impact on both of them. Like, they can't explain it. Well, let me, tell you about, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my Jesus and what he can do. All right? Then you reject what God forbids. Like if God says this is what we shouldn't do, then we don't want to do it, right? As Christians, we want to align ourselves with the Word of God. That's why we don't have Christian drug cartels or uh, Christian abortion clinics or Christian non-traditional marriages because that would be in violation of God's Word. Now here's here's the rub right here. And that's the third one is you redeem what can be reformed. Now let me kind of explain what I mean by that, is that some Christians say um, that if anything in culture has a pagan origin, it's unredeemable. Let me give you three things that have a pagan origin that we participate in. Easter, Halloween, and Christmas. Probably didn't know that, did you? Other than most of you say, well, okay, I get Halloween, right? Uh, all right, let's think Easter was the pagan holiday associated with Estrey, who was a fertility goddess, which is why we have Easter eggs. Now, why they come out of a bunny, I have no earthly idea how that happens. But the church took that and says, listen, do we reject it? Do we redeem it? And they chose to redeem it. And so Easter is celebrated in the springtime. It's a time where we come out of winter and it's new life. And the resurrection of Jesus was all about bringing new life into the hearts and lives of people who receive him as their Savior and their Lord. And it's about new beginnings and new starts. And so Easter is a holy holiday for us because it is a reminder of the resurrection power of Christ that is available to every single one of us through a relationship with him. Now, Halloween is a big, uh, hotly debated among believers. Should we participate in Halloween? You know, the witches and zombies and dressing up and going out and terrifying our neighbor kids. I love that. No, it came from the pagan origins of Saman, and it included witchcraft, Ouija boards, tarot cards, spells and curses. Uh, It was Satan's holiday, right? Should we reject that or can we redeem it? Well, you can redeem it. Like when I was a child, you know, I went out on Halloween to get candy. I wanted to get a year's worth of candy, right? So you know, I took a pillowcase, uh, but back in those days, you got more things than candy. You got like popcorn balls. How many remember popcorn balls? 
All right, look at those hands. You're old. All right, so popcorn balls, you know, they, I love popcorn balls. I live for popcorn balls. Uh, but I didn't think anything about, you know, whatever I was dressed up as. One year, my sisters dressed me up as a girl. Uh, that was a horrible thing. But other than that, it was about the candy. So um, can it be redeemed? Well, absolutely it can. For example, Liberty University, which is a Christian university, every year they, have a ma- they bought a mansion that's out in this, uh, this field, and every year they do a haunted house. Everything inside that haunted house is alive. Snakes, rats, everything. And so my wife and I went through that many, many years ago. And at the end, what do they do? They give the plan of salvation. They talk about Jesus. They talk about heaven and hell and the choice you have to make. And so it's something they chose to redeem. We used to have a passion play here every year. And so in that passion play, for the first few years, I played two characters. I played King Herod and Satan. Somebody in our church said, Pastor, you can't play Satan anymore. You're too good at it. And the pastor shouldn't be doing that anyways. So it was a stumbling block. So what do churches do now? We take Halloween, we call it Harvest Festival. What do we do at Harvest Festival? Dress up our kids, give them candy out of the back of a car. (laughs) We do Shine the Light, which we set up in downtown uh, Groveport. And yes, we give out free food, we give out candy, we've had prayer tents, we've, we've done all kinds of things with Shine the Light. Can it be redeemed? Absolutely, it can be redeemed. Now, what if you came out of the occult background, which we had a, a person here in our church several years ago. Um, she was high up in the occult. I mean, high up like a priestess, got saved, came to church, and then when Halloween rolled around, she's like, why are you guys celebrating Halloween? And said, well, here's why, and here's how we redeem it. And for her, it was a stumbling block. I said, listen, don't participate. If this is bothering your conscience, then don't participate in that. Well, what about Christmas? That's a big one, right? Um, That comes from the pagan originally from uh, Santornilla. Um, I probably butchered that name, which is a pagan holiday. And the early Christians um, had a day off in uh, in December So they chose to redeem the holiday and say, hey, we're going to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We're going to make it all about Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, More than likely, he was born in the fall, just based on calendars. Uh, But that's not the point. I've I've heard an an, um, atheist arguing against Christianity because we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th. And I wasn't, whatever. Uh, Argue all you want. It was just simply we're redeeming a holiday to say, hey, this is a time where we make it all about Jesus, right? Now, the early Puritans refused to do that. And in protest, they would work on December 25th because they didn't believe it was redeemable. But um, the, the, the um, church through the years has said, yeah, we're just going to make it all about Jesus. It's his birthday. Well, what about Santa? Because that's another hotly contested thing. You know that Santa was originally St. Nicholas, born in the 3rd century in modern Turkey from a very affluent family. His parents died when he was young. He inherited a massive amounts of money, and he took that money, and he was, uh, he, he was raised to love Jesus. He was very generous, so he gave most of his inheritance to needy children by giving gifts. He became the bishop of, Ma- of Mira, and he argued for the deity of Christ uh, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. He was a godly man who spent most of his inheritance helping the poor and the needy and telling them about Jesus. So is he redeemable? Absolutely. Now, there's been a lot of folklore and all kinds of things added to Santa Claus, so I don't know what your feeling is. If you don't want your kids to believe about Santa, great. If you do, great. Uh, It's really up to you as a parent. So we all come from different places with different opinions, different convictions, And so what Paul is simply saying, listen, we need to reject the things that we need to reject, we receive the things that we need to receive, and we redeem what we can redeem. But always, we're looking for the wise thing to do. Number two, because I got four minutes. Rather than judging people, let's help them walk in the Spirit. And so he goes on in verse 15. Um... It's my birthday. I got to get done early. You believe that, don't you? If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. 
Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is a matter of not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Please note that. Let's do what? Everything that leads to peace and mutual edification. So if I'm engaging in a disputable matter with someone, what's the end goal? Is that we want to we end this thing peacefully. We want to, to look at mutual edification. So here's how I put it. Rather than judging people, here's what I want to do. I want to help you walk in the Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God, the principles of God, and helps us make the wisest decisions we need to make in life for our families, for your situation, for where you are. And so if God needs to change your conscience, if he needs to grow you in your faith in an area, it, that is the role and the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. All I do week in and week out is open up God's word to you and say, okay, let's see what God has to say and let the Holy Spirit bring about Within us, let him, you know, if he needs to wreck our faith, let him wreck our faith. If he needs to give us encouragement, let him encourage us. If he needs to give us wisdom in some area, let him give us wisdom. If he needs to challenge our conscience, then let him challenge our conscience. And so Paul is talking here about creating teachable moments. He says, let's not destroy one another. Let's create teachable moments. And the, and the, the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God is what enables that to happen. So here are the, is the purpose of the law. These are the purpose of why God's given us clear commands. Number one is for what I call curbs or guardrails is the one I like to use. Is that, listen, God gave us the law. He gave us the specific Word of God so that we do not experience what is on the other side of those guardrails. In other words, God says you can operate freely and liberally in Christ in this area, but here's my guardrails. Do not go outside of those guardrails because if you do, you're going to experience something you really don't want to experience. So he gives us the law, the word of God, God's principles to help contain us within uh, the framework of freedom in Christ so that we do not mess up our lives. Number two is the, a mirror, right? What do you do when you look in a mirror? Uh, you look in a mirror and you see something like you got this big old zit right here you didn't know you had, and you're, like, you're embarrassed about it. So this is what the Word of God does. Listen, I think I'm fine. I think everything about me is fine until I lift up God's Word in front of me. And God says, mm, no, 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 not, you're, you're not really that great, Greg. I'm telling you, we got some stuff to work on here. But I will never acknowledge that if I don't allow the, the Bible to become a mirror that says to me, this is who your Heavenly Father is. This is how He's reflecting Himself. This is what you're looking at right now. Here's where I want you, point B. Here you are, point A. How can we get you from point A to point B? And God spells out in His Word, this is how we're going to do it. Because God wants to transform us, right? Through the renewing of our mind. And also, uh, the Bible is a guide. It is, it, the law shows us the best way that we can we can move in, in the love of the Lord. And so I, I look at the gospel as a locomotive, right, on a train. And the word of God, the law, the Bible, are the train tracks. They can tell me where to go, but they have no power in and of itself to get me there. So that's why the spirit of God takes the word of God and transforms us from the inside out. And so as we are open to that and we allow the Holy Spirit to continue in this transformation process, then all of a sudden we are able to live, rather than living culture up, we live kingdom down. Jesus came down. The word of God's come down. God wants us to live it. Thy kingdom's come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do I bring kingdom down? I bring kingdom down as I follow the word of God and I allow the Holy Spirit to transform me as I'm following and shaping me and conforming me into the image of Christ. So let's just, for example, take the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. 
It shows me to be satisfied with God and to so trust in his plan for me that I don't get jealous over what somebody else has because I know that God's walking me in his best plan possible for me. So I don't have to get jealous about what you got and what I don't have. And so God helps us to live rather culture up, kingdom down, which results in righteousness, peace, and joy, which brings us to rather than changing people, you want to help them by serving them in love. Let's wrap this up. He says in verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubt is condemned if he eats, because he is, his eating is not from faith, and everything that he does must come from faith or to sin. So I just give you how, how to balance the tightrope of freedom. Three words, right? Be considerate. Be considerate, he says. I have the freedom in Christ to enjoy a lot of things. Watch this. But as a pastor, I limit my freedom because I know that if I were to exercise that freedom, it might be detrimental to somebody who's new in the faith. So I willingly limit myself to some things that I will not do simply because I know that it would, be, um, it would not be considerate of those who are weaker in, in the faith. Number two, be convinced, Right? Many Christians are not, you know, they're just not clear on what they believe. And it's a perpetual frustration for you. Like, well, I'm all over the map. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to do. And so I would just say to you, determine what Scripture has to say. Discuss it with a trusted, mature believer and consider the impact that you might be having on others, whether positively or negatively, and then be consistent, right? You want to be consistent. Your actions should uh, engage and line up with your conscience. You don't want to keep violating your conscience. And if the conscience needs to change, allow the Holy Spirit to do. So both the strong believer and the weak believer needs to grow. The stronger believer needs to grow in love. The weak believer needs to grow in knowledge. And when those two things come together, all of a sudden God helps us to formulate and to flesh out these disputable matters for our own lives. So here's how I close this is although issues matter, is what Paul would say, although issues matter, people matter more. People matter more. So if we're going to maintain unity in the body of Christ, we have to agree to disagree agreeably over disputable matters. Let's pray.